recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to Epino episode number 29 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at Duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend about it. We would really appreciate that. Um, and you can also follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at PR Law Podcast, all one word, PR Law Podcast. And you can subscribe to us on YouTube and and SoundCloud, not to miss an episode. Um, and lastly, please sign up for our newsletter. You can do so at prlawpodcast.club and uh, get some information about the show. Good morning, Ewan. At least it's morning for me again here in Hong Kong because Monday's a holiday. So uh, I'm having my coffee once again. That's right. I'm on the night shift. Love right. the night shift, Cam. You know, I love the night shift. Yeah. Have you got a um, scotch with you there, Ewan, or uh, not tonight? You know, you know what? I've got, um, I, I have a mediation tomorrow morning, so mm. I'm, uh, I'm just sipping on some, some club soda and, uh, and freshly squeezed lemon juice. Mm, very responsible. Yeah, not bad, huh? What else is going on over there in uh, Toronto? Well, we um, had, a, had a good weekend. Yesterday, for whatever reason, it was like 28 degrees here with the Humidex, which of course is, uh, I don't know, only about 15 degrees hotter than what it normally should be. Mm. So, um, and probably even more than that. And I did something that I hadn't done cam in, uh, in quite a few months. What was that? I, uh, I met a couple of my colleagues and I sat outside on a patio and I drank a beer and it was <laughs> absolutely glorious. That's like a novel thing now, hey, like meeting up with people and going to a restaurant and uh, yeah, especially in October, late October. Oh, yeah, I know. It was it, it was crazy. You know, it was just a nice, cool breeze. And there were other human beings <laughs> that I could, you know, see and and uh, and 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 touch. They were they were real. They were there. They weren't coming at me through a computer screen. Mm. It was um, it, it was it was pretty it was pretty incredible. And, you know, that beer it tasted, it was probably one of the best beers I've ever had in my entire life. And I couldn't even tell you what it was. I'd never heard of it before. I'll probably never have it again. But in that moment, it was perfection. I've said this before. When you earn a beer, I mean, like my dad would always say, um, you know, if you mow the lawn in the afternoon and when you're finished mowing the lawn and you sit down and you have a beer outside, that tastes really good. You've earned it. You've just done some work yeah. and now you get to enjoy the fruits of that labor. Um, I can see the same thing now when we're so many of us are trapped at home. I mean, we aren't here in Hong Kong, but I know a lot of people back in North America um, just getting out and seeing other people and, and, and sharing sort of conversation and stuff like that is, is, is nice and long overdue. It's uh, yeah, it's been it's been cooling off here, which is nice. I've always said, Ewan, that the uh, winter in Hong Kong is the nicest time of year because it will go down to about 24, 25 degrees uh, and the humid uh, humidity dissipates and it's finally super nice outside. So I hope to be doing similar sort of patio, patio beers. Um, did you catch any of the uh, presidential debate, Ewan, last week? Come on, Cam. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yes, I did. I wanted, I don't know if somebody did it yet, but I really, really, really wanted 
someone and if there's anyone listening and you have the wherewithal to uh to put it together i wanted somebody to do a video montage of all the biden come ons it reminded <laughs> me of do you, do you remember years ago cam there was a there was a bit that went viral of don draper from madman mm-hmm. doing his what yes I did say see what. That, yeah and somebody had compiled this incredible montage of every you know, every instance of him saying what over this, over the period of the, the course of the show, I, I want someone to do that for Biden's come ons because uh, they, they were just coming fast and furious. You know, I had a, um, a dinner on, on Saturday uh, and it was over at a, a friend's place in Hong Kong. And one of the, one of the guests was, yeah, a reporter from the New York times. And she was saying that, you know, when she was watching the debate, um, she felt Trump was doing much better than before, to the point that it concerned her that um, he was making sense and he was more polite. um, And it helped him. It made him seem better. She said if she really sort of took herself out of, you know, knowing who Trump is already and just trying to stand back and say, how do they sound if I didn't know anything about the two of them? Um, And and I do think he he did perform better, but I also think that the bar was so low that it wasn't too too difficult to clear either. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think objectively they both did better. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, again, whatever to your point, whatever that means vis-a-vis the, 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 the initial debate, because I think to your point, it, it was a pretty low bar. I don't know if we could have gone lower. Um, so yeah, it was, it was certainly an improvement. I found it a little bit easier to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I found it was, you know, people were actually able to sort of convey convey points on, on, on both sides, which was a, a good thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ultimately, do I think it's going to sway anyone's view or um, sort of position in, in terms of how they were planning to vote? I, I highly, highly doubt it. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. You and I am quite excited about the subject you're going to talk about this week. So uh, let's get to it. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'll tell you how I I heard about this. And I'm sure I heard about it the way that probably a lot of people did, which was when I opened Twitter and I saw sort of the trending, uh, trending topics and hashtags. One of them that was very, very close to the top was Zoom coupled with a, uh, you know, a particular euphemism for the male human anatomy and i clicked on it and of course that was how i stumbled upon the the story of of jeffrey tubin who i i'm sure most of our listeners are probably familiar with now if they weren't before um you know tubin is a reporter for the new yorker and um he's a cnn legal analyst and he was suspended last week uh after it was revealed that he was caught masturbating uh during a zoom video conference uh, with his with his colleagues, his New Yorker colleagues, and um, as I understand, a member of uh, WNYC Radio. Actually, we can throw to AP here just for a quick wrap up if you had not heard this story yet. 
Jeffrey Tubin usually gets lots of exposure on his job at New Yorker magazine and on CNN as a legal analyst, but he'll be away from both of those gigs for a while because of some exposure that happened online. Vice is reporting that Tubin exposed himself during a Zoom meeting with staffers of The New Yorker and WNYC Radio. The nature and details of the alleged exposure are not clear. Tubin is 60 and has written for The New Yorker for 20 years. He's regular on CNN and has written several books the most recent of which focused on the Trump impeachment saga. I'm Oscar Wells Gabriel. So Ewan, this is um, this is an interesting one. It's quite a bit different from a lot of the other cases that we talk about, I think, because this is a case where clearly he exposed himself. I assume that he did not intend to expose himself. I know he's quite embarrassed about this happening. It appears like there was a Zoom call that they were doing a a U.S. election simulation, and they had a lot of the big names at The New Yorker on the call, um, like Jane Mayer and Evan Osnos and people like that. And during this this long sort of simulation and discussion... um, when people could see him masturbating on his on his webcam, um, and he said he didn't know that this was there. So I, this is a very very awkward and embarrassing thing for for Jeffrey Tubin. But from a legal perspective, Ewan, I mean, does it does it matter that it was by accident? Well, yeah, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. I mean, look, I understand that. I mean, there's been no shortage of of coverage on this issue and all kinds of. You know, all kinds of jokes. And um, I mean, even that, as you saw that that audio clip you cut to where there was just all kinds of bad puns. Um, But really, the reason I thought it was interesting, well, I thought it was interesting for a few reasons. One, I thought it was very interesting, the number of people that were immediately jumping to his defense and a number of people trying to make it a political issue and looking at his track record, um, you know, of just exceptional work, if that happens to be the way that you see his work, depending on where you fall on the political spectrum. But, uh, you know, I think, Kim, I think those are all just, they're all red herring issues. And for me, from a legal perspective, I just thought, well, yeah, I mean, look, this is, this is sexual misconduct. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Um, You know, I understand that in a, in a, in a COVID post COVID world, COVID world, we have a lot more people working from home and employers, they need to cut employees some slack regarding zoom calls. And I mean, you know, perhaps your, your three-year-old, I don't know, hypothetically maybe comes in, comes barging into the room while you're conducting a a virtual mediation, for example, Mm. not that that's happened (laughs) to me. It's happened to me once or twice. It's happened to my wife, my wife once or twice. Um, Like I get it. These things are going to happen. Employers understand that these things are going to happen, but that's not really what we're talking about here. This situation is really quite different. And, you know, regardless of where you might fall in the political spectrum and regardless of how you might feel about Tubin's body of work, the reality is, is that this was inappropriate conduct. And from a legal perspective, this is really no different than him sitting in a boardroom and exposing himself or whatever the specific conduct was and, and you know, performing these sorts of lewd acts in front of his colleagues. The fact that he did it virtually, the fact that he did it by accident is largely irrelevant, Cam. And yeah, there should be some discipline from the employer for this kind of conduct. This is a case where I think the legal and the PR side really do 
diverge though, because I mean, you're talking from a legal point of view that, yeah, he exposed himself in front of his colleagues. Like there's just no, I guess there's no legal way to sort of justify or excuse that. But I do think, I mean, you mentioned on Twitter and in some other um, forums where, you know, people have said, look, this, this was a mistake. Like he didn't, this is horribly embarrassing for him and he should get some cut some slack at the very least. And I think that's, that's an interesting perspective because, you know, you and I mean, I read an article, I can't, I can't remember where it was now, actually, I really should find it, but it talked about how, um, like a lot of, uh, employees had admitted masturbating at work, something like 30 or 40% of men had admitted doing that at some point in their careers privately in the, in the stall or wherever they go or in their offices. Um, and so this is, this is something that's not uncommon. And I mean, there's an assumption that maybe this has increased since people are working from home because there's, there is that feeling of privacy. That's a little, a little higher than, than being inside of an office. And then this thing is sort of bound to happen, especially with, um, you know, sort of okay boomer a little bit on this one too. I mean, Tubin clearly doesn't really know how to, how to manage his technology, which means this is a very dangerous thing for him to be doing during a work meeting. Um, there's no doubt that this is absolutely inappropriate. Um, his attempt was to masturbate sort of while leaving his zoom call on hoping they wouldn't know and kind of do his own thing on the side. And we've all done that not the masturbating part but the i'm going to leave zoom on and actually you know eat or or quickly listen to this or talk to my wife or whatever it might be um so that's again that's sort of understandable too but the result is just too traumatic i think for people on the call and just too awful to just excuse this even though it was an accident yeah and i mean i think you know really it comes down to this cam is that when you're engaged in work over zoom at home that you have to think of that virtual office of that that call that video as an extension of your physical office the old you know that good old bricks and mortar office that we that we all used to go to on a day-to-day basis because it is it's the same thing and any inappropriate conduct that you engage in over that video conference is an extension of the workplace. And really that's why it's a simple issue or I see it as a very, very simple issue. And I'm sorry. I mean, the okay boomer thing, it's not good enough, you know, and I, and I've seen a lot of cases over the years, not to, to go off on too much of a tangent cam, but with, you know, um, men, because it, again, you know, it's, it's almost always men, um, you know, circulating, pornographic videos through their work email accounts and not fully comprehending that any, you know, competent IT person can trace those videos. And, and again, we've talked about this many, many times before cam, and that's the reputational risk and harm that you as an employee can impose upon your employer. Well, if you're the CEO of a company and you're circulating pornographic videos or pornographic images, and you happen to send one to the wrong person, or you happen to send one to someone external of your, your group of people who, who find this acceptable and word gets out that you as a CEO have a habit of, of doing this sort of thing that causes all kinds of reputational risk and damage 
to the employer such that it could be caused for discharge. And Tubin is sort of dealing with the same thing. He's a high profile personality. People know him. People know his work. They see him on television. They read his articles. And this has caused a great deal, I would assume. I mean, I'm not obviously an employee of, uh, of, of The New Yorker or of, or of CNN or any of the other you know environments that, that, that Tubin contributes to. But I suspect that this has caused a great deal of reputational risk. And on that basis, yeah, sure, they're probably considering, at the very least, um, either some serious, serious disciplinary measures. I mean, I understand he's been suspended, um, but possibly terminating the employment relationship and arguably for good reason, just because of that reputational damage. Yeah, I think he's definitely damaged his own reputation. How much he has damaged the reputation of The New Yorker, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but my 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 instinct is not not very much, um, and I think you know following the coverage of this, this is a unique case. Um, it really is in the nature of it, the work from home side, the Zoom call, the sort of accidental nature of it. All of these things make it different to uh, like a, a, an employee who has a history of doing this sort of thing, or a company with several employees who have a history um, of doing this sort of thing. And this doesn't excuse it. Don't get me wrong, Ewan. But I, I don't think there's people out there going, geez, I, I'm questioning the New Yorker's work culture, that this is something that happened. I don't get the sense that it has landed that way. Um, and so, I mean, that part's a little bit different too, I think. Yeah. I, I, and look, I mean, I, 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 I suspect you're probably right. But the reality is, is that at least for the next few weeks, when people hear the New Yorker, they're probably going to be thinking of this individual and, and piecing, piecing the two together. And yeah, that inevitably is going to cause some some reputational harm and some reputational risk. Does it mean people are going to go out and cancel their New Yorker subscriptions? No, I think probably not. Um, but, you know, it's not the sort of thing that you want to be associated with as a highbrow publication. And, you know, I, I don't really know what, what Tubin's defense was. And I was sort of curious to get your take on, you know, the, the brief statement that he issued, because it was very, very brief saying it was, you know, this was a mistake and he's he's incredibly embarrassed. And, you know, um, he thought he yeah, had a camera. He apologized to his wife, his friends and coworkers, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, I have his you know, statement here. Um, sorry to cut you oh, off. You, okay. Yeah. So he said, quote, I made an embarrassingly stupid mistake believing I was off camera. I apologized to my wife, family, friends, and coworkers. I believed I was not visible on Zoom. I thought no one on the Zoom call could see me. I thought I had muted the Zoom video. So that's the key part of his statement. Um, well, what do you think? Well, I think the first part is good. The second part I'm having a little more difficulty with. So again, in a situation like this, and we've talked about this on the show, taking responsibility in a believable, sincere way is paramount. And I do think he does that by saying, I made an embarrassingly stupid mistake. Um, and he apologized. Um, but the second part, uh, to me, is a little defensive. Because he says, I was not visible on Zoom. I thought no one could see me. I thought I had muted. That doesn't matter. Because even if even if the zoom video was muted which you don't mute video but anyway um it, he still shouldn't have been doing that during a work call so that's why i have a, an issue with the second part it seems to, he seems to be sort of explaining himself and saying it happened because of this and if this wouldn't have happened i wouldn't have been exposed but actually he shouldn't have been masturbating during a work call to begin with um you know whether he can be seen or not seen and so I mean, it's it's a it's a point that I noticed, but I think in the first part he did properly take accountability or, or for for what he did. 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've sort of thought about from a legal perspective, what, what would, what would I be suggesting that or a position that he, he should take? I mean, really the only thing I can kind of come up with is yeah, you, you come right out and you say, this was a stupid thing to do. I'm, I made a huge mistake. I'm really, really sorry. And you sort of, to some extent you rest on your laurels that, you have no prior discipline, uh, disciplinary record, no warnings, no performance issues, that this really just was an isolated incident. It's never going to happen again. So, yes, there should be some disciplinary measures, but, you know, it shouldn't result in, in you know, in termination of the employment relationship. The only other thing I can think of, Cam, is if he was to assert that, you know, he suffers from, you know, some form of of diagnosable sexual addiction or, or disability that might require accommodation, right? Because again, in a number of jurisdictions, Ontario being one of them, um, you know, there, there is sort of a duty, a duty to accommodate someone who suffers from a disability. Now, whether or not you'd really get away with that in front of a court, I, I, I mean, Hey, I, I don't know. I guess it's an argument. Is it a particularly good one? Probably not. You know, this is also interesting because there are several statements. I mean, obviously, uh, Tubin put out his statement, but I mean, so did CNN, for instance. So they said, um, Jeff Tubin has asked for some time off while he deals with a personal issue, which we have granted. Um, so that's the way CNN uh, dealt with it. A New Yorker spokesperson just said Jeffrey Tubin has been suspended while we investigate the matter. And then David Remnick, uh, who, again, I'm sure people know he's the editor of The New Yorker. He's been there a very, very long time. Uh, he sent a note to staff, which said, Dear all, as you may have read in various news reports today, one of our writers, Jeff Tubin, was suspended after an incident on a Zoom call last week. Please be assured that we take such matters seriously and that we are looking into it. Best, David. The interesting thing with all of these is they are very non-committal. They're very... I don't want to use the word bland, um, but it doesn't compel them to any action whatsoever or even talk about really what, what happened. Um, and I think that gives them a broad leeway to determine how to how to deal with this. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think if if anything comes out of this, I hope it's that more employers sit down and think, oh, geez, you know, maybe we should sit down. And, you know, I know I, I feel like I talk about this every other week, Cam, but, you know, policy, workplace policies and procedures, anti-her, you know, anti-discrimination, anti-harassment policies, these sorts of things, um, and sit down and revise policies to sort of broaden them to include and address the fact that a lot of employees in a lot of employment contexts are now working from home and reminding employees that, you know, your behavior at home is an extension of your behavior in the workplace and things like appropriate attire on video calls, um, being punctual for, for checking into, to video calls and, you know, not, doing anything that may pose a reputational risk to, to your employer. These things are just as valid when you're working from, from home as they are from when you were working in the office. So, you know, I think employers need to turn their minds to those things and employees need to be conscious of the fact that, you know, you can't just fall out of bed and hop onto a zoom call, um, you know, in your, in your underwear 
and and assume that everything's going to go smoothly. I, you know, I think employees need to try and conduct themselves with the same level of professionalism at home that they would at work. And again, as we sort of discussed, you know, off the top, that doesn't mean that, you know, employees should be raked over the coals because their their child runs into the room while they're on a call or, you know, you know the, the, the doorbell rings because Amazon's or somebody's, you know, delivering a package. I mean, these things are going to happen. And I think employees need to be somewhat, um, you know, flexible in in giving employees some discretion in that regard. But this is, you know, this is something else entirely. Yeah, that's good advice for for employees, you and as well. You know, just as a side note, it is interesting how, I mean, COVID nineteen has put all of us in unfamiliar situations, and it's really right across the board for the most part. And I think you know the Zoom meetings are one of those instances where we're still trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way to do this, what are the rules that should be in place, you know, things like that. I had a Zoom call last Thursday or Friday with a person in uh, Abu Dhabi. And he put sort of a kind of a touristy photo of Abu Dhabi behind him as his backdrop, which I thought was okay. But then I thought, are there rules around this? Because some other people sometimes put um, maybe something not so uh, innocuous as that backdrop. Maybe it's something that they like or something funny or something like that. And is that appropriate? Like, where do we draw the line over what's a suitable backdrop on, on Zoom? I just think there's so many areas like this that we haven't yet figured out. Um, and then it's probably going to take some mistakes and screw ups to happen, um, for us to sort of put these, these lines in the sand uh, over what's, what's appropriate and what's not. But the second point, and I, I touched on this at the beginning as well, is just uh, Tubin's use of technology. And again, he shouldn't have been doing it, whether he was a technology master or not, but I implore people who don't really get tech or who struggle with it, not to take these risks. Um, it's really important. Like this stuff can go badly as it did for Tubin. I mean, this is horribly embarrassing for him. I have no doubt about that. I mean, the, he's got a 20 year or, or 25 year career, um, you know, as a, as a fairly distinguished journalist, um, the New Yorker is, you know, in the top rung of, of organizations globally in terms of journalism. And he's, a, and he's on CNN as well. And this kind of stuff can, can tarnish your, your legacy. I mean, this is going into his obituary, I bet. <laughs> Um, you know, this is just a, a big story that he's a part of in a way that he didn't want to be a part of it. And so it's not worth taking those risks and people should be much more careful. Yeah. And look, just as a, as a final point, Cam, you know, we've talked about, this is incredibly embarrassing for him and this is terrible for him. And, you know, this could cost him his job, but you know, let's, let's also keep in perspective. The reason that this is grossly inappropriate conduct is not because of the impact upon himself it's the impact upon others and the fact of the matter is is that you know there were a number of people on the other end of that call that were subjected to this grossly inappropriate conduct and you know those are the people that we should be focused on those are the people that seem to be lost in the mix here that nobody's talking about is that a number of highly professional highly reputable journalists were on a call and they were subjected to this nonsense. And really that, that just shouldn't be happening in any context, let alone, you know, um, the, the group of individuals that were likely on that call. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. 
If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, Ewan. Uh, yeah, that was a good that was a good discussion. I love it when stories like that come up because there's so many different angles to it and uh, ways to talk about it. On, on the PR side today, I, I'm not going into a, a case study or something in the news today, but rather kind of looking ahead to 2021 because um, you know we're we're at the end of October here. This has been um, a horrific year for many people uh, for a number of reasons, and so. Um, you know, I think organizations as well, they're going through the budget processes, uh, they're preparing uh, for their objectives and their mission for 2021. And so there are some some trends. Uh, there's an online uh, magazine basically called Public Relations Today, and they've just put out their five main PR trends for 2021. And I think it's worth kind of having a look at this uh, to see sort of what they are and how they work. So um, you and the first one's ESG. I, I assume you're familiar with environmental, social, and corporate governance. Yes. So this is, I mean, as you know, it's it's a very big area of corporate governance. Uh, when I worked at the stock exchange, this was really important, and it's growing in importance, um, and it's expected to continue growing in importance. And basically, yeah, it does stand for environmental, social, and corporate governance, meaning um, sort of sustainability is a, is a term that that goes with it, but oftentimes it sort of includes some CSR potentially, um, and some other sort of environmental or, or goodwill programs that the company uh, has in place. And so this used to be something that was optional. It used to be something that you could, you know, dabble in or, or take a look at, but it wasn't really core to what your investors or what your stakeholders expected. Um, but now it is. Um, this is is a very powerful trend. And um, this article notes that the, the political landscape uh, is polarized now with loud voices on all sides. And so with this mounting pressure, the need for ESG, uh, especially, you know, as we deal with issues like the climate crisis and COVID-19 are, are, are really important. And it's ways for companies to stand up and stand out uh, on these on these areas. And you and we talked before on this show just sort of about stakeholder capitalism and companies being responsible to more than just their shareholders. ESG is a really big part of that. And um, I, I, I do agree with uh, public relations today that this is going to be a really big item again in 2021. And I think COVID-19 uh, obviously kind of re-emphasizes that. Okay. So, I mean, you know, what can companies be doing to sort of get on top of this sort of thing? Okay. So, if we take a look at the E and the S and the G in there, so environment, obviously any environmental initiatives or policies that you've got, um, anything that you're doing uh, for sustainability, environmental sustainability, that would be something that you would consider there. Um, on the social side, again, you know, this is closely related to CSR, right? And um, corporate social responsibility is what CSR stands for. And it's not charity. It's not meant to be donations, that's not CSR. CSR is really geared towards helping the community that you serve in some way that also helps your business be more sustainable. So for instance, when I was at the stock exchange, the one thing that we used to talk about a lot for, for CSR would be maybe a financial literacy course uh, for, for young people, because these are ways where, you know, you're giving your time and your expertise to help train people, but also you're training them in areas that will enable them to enter the industry and maybe someday be your customers. Um, and so there is that sort of link between these things that 
should be there really with CSR. It's not about just, I'm going to go plant trees. Um, it's got to be something a little more, more um, got a little more substance to it. So these are the things. And then obviously corporate governance, you know, you're really looking at your management committee and your board. You want to have, you know, diversity on the board in terms of backgrounds and perspectives, along with racial diversity. And obviously gender diversity is a big one, which is really being pushed hard, um, you know, in, in markets around the world. So these are these all make up ESG and they're great for PR people because these are things that are positive about the company that you can roll out at good events. Um, you can talk about, you can create videos about, you can do all kinds of content around these themes. Um, and it's really, it really reflects positively on, on, on your company. So again, this used to be optional. I, I don't think it is optional anymore. This is now expected, uh, and you should have an ESG or CSR section of your website. Uh, and this is really now important to being sort of a modern company. Wow. So, I mean, large companies, I suspect sort of have departments, uh, addressing these sorts of issues. I mean, are the individuals that are kind of occupying those positions. I, I, I mean, I would assume that you've got to have a couple PR people and marketing people that are working with sort of working in tandem with probably some lawyers and, um, and people addressing from a more bureaucratic perspective issues of corporate governance. I mean, is it really just trying to picture what a department like that might look like in, in a large company? Yeah. And this depends on the company, the industry, um, you know, all of these sort of factors, but I mean, normally corporate governance, if you're a listed company, then you're adhering to sort of the listing rules or the best practices uh, of the market that you're listed in. So that will deal with a lot of that, but you still would have a company secretary, uh, you know, who, who would ensure that you're, you know, aiming to be a, a high performing uh, company in terms of your corporate governance um, compared to other listed companies in that market. Um, but there are other cases where you, you would have a CSR head or a CSR department. Uh, it really does depend on the size of your company. In some cases, it does sit with uh, corporate communications or PR. Um, so, it can really go either way, but you definitely need people there at least high in the company because you want buy-in from the top. And so they should be involved at least in terms of setting the direction that this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to make our investments. These are the things that we care about. Um, and we're going to, we're going to push. And then it can cascade down to the PR team, which can get the messages and the programs out around this. Um, so that's probably one of the more common ways to, to do it. Okay. And I mean, what, what sort of, I mean, what sort of trickle down effect do you see in 2021 around, around issues like that, that, you know, could, could kind of be applicable to, a you know, a smaller business, for example, because I mean, again, we always sort of talk about these things in, in sort of huge mm -hmm. companies, but it's not like they're any less relevant in sort of smaller, more independent mom and pop shops, right? Yeah. And so first off, if you're a small company um, and you've just got a couple of employees, or even if it's just yourself, give it a think. Um, if, the, if you have a good CSR program or ESG, that can be it can really separate you from your peers and it can generate positive coverage. There are reporters out there that just cover this stuff in some major news publications. So if you're a small business who has a program like this and you pitch that to these reporters, I mean, it's something that you might get media coverage from. Um, so there's definitely the PR angle there that's, that's quite powerful, but you would just want to really sit back and think, you know, what kind of a business do I have? Like, where can I, make a difference. You and like in your case at a, at a law firm, I mean, what are your values there at that firm? You know, who, like, what does sustainability mean to your law firm? Like what, 
who are the people that you need sort of coming down the, the, in the, in the pipeline, these sorts of things, like what, what areas can you make a difference? And it's not easy. It's not something you just go, Oh, it's a, B and C. Um, you have to give it some thought and you have to work with others in the company to think about this and try and isolate something like that. And then once you've got it, then yes, that's where it has a legitimate, real tangible good because it is a good policy or program theoretically. But then, B, you get the PR and the sort of marketing win out of it um, as well, which can be powerful. So, so this is um, it is it is important. There's no question. That's good to know. I mean, yeah. This is always really really good advice for somebody <laughs> who runs a you know a small well, small shop. The second one, this one um, interests me a little bit. The writer listed communication maturity, and this mm. is described as the development level of common perceptions amongst leaders, communicators and co-workers. So the writer says, as society deals with the continuing challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, organizations must look inwards to ensure that the organization and not just the communications department is accountable for processes, results, and advocacy. So this can be related, in fact, uh, to ESG. So, so this is the limits of your PR team. If you are asked a question about some, something pertaining to the business, you know, the PR team has to answer it honestly, obviously. So if there is a breakdown in the business or there's something happening that's not advisable or not best practice, that then hurts the PR team's capability to manage that that process or that problem. So what she's saying here basically is that there needs to be alignment on the business side and on the PR side to look after these areas that might create risk. So PR teams have different levels of influence in different companies. And I've worked at them where the PR team is sitting at the table with the various business groups and their opinions are sought because they are linked. Um, You know, business groups have ideas or they have programs that they might want to initiate, but it might be not advisable from a PR perspective. And maybe you overrule that. Maybe you proceed anyway. But it's at least good to have the discussion so everyone's eyes are opened and everyone knows sort of where where things stand. Um, but this but this is important sort of for, for, for those reasons, just making sure that there's alignment, that, um, you know, the risks are, are dealt with and managed as best as possible. Everyone throughout the company understands sort of where where they sit, what's happening um, and the perceptions externally of what's happening internally as well, because sometimes there's a breakdown there where there's a perception internally that things are going very well, but externally there's other issues that maybe those management aren't as closely related to or worried about that are actually doing more harm. So that would be a case of sort of misalignment in that case. Right. So, I mean, like Cam, what would you, what would you recommend then in terms of a starting point? I'm thinking, you know, your, your business, maybe you're a smaller business or maybe you're a mid-sized business and you haven't really turned your mind to sort of PR and communication aspect of, of your business. And you're doing that now for the first time, but you don't have anyone working for you. You don't have a department. You're not familiar with, you know, PR agencies. I mean, what do you, how would you recommend or what would you recommend to, to a business like that in terms of where do you, you know, where do they start when they want to sort of break into this? Cause this is, these are all really, really good points. And I just think about, you know, what's the, what's the jumping off point? What's the entry position for a lot of companies that want to address these issues for the first time, but don't really know how to do that or where to go. 
number one, I, if possible, I would try and find some communications person to to look at it. Um, only because this does take time, and theoretically, if you're a small business, I mean, your your expertise is in another area, and you might not want to take the necessary time to sort of figure this stuff out and try and figure out how to do it well, because it, it, it can take some time. But number two, if, if you do want to proceed with this, I actually think the first one really is, is we always say listening. It's going out there. It's, it's setting up either Google alerts or subscribing to RSS feeds and filtering those out, um, which is another question I could explain. I think everyone knows Google alerts though, to figure out, you know, you should have an alert set for your own company. I think a lot of people do this so you can see what people are saying about your company. And then you should have sort of just news monitoring and social media monitoring of your industry in general. And I think through that, I mean, that's your key sort of funnel for intelligence about what's happening in your marketplace that might go beyond your, your immediate horizons. And, and this will give you some idea of what your competitors are doing. I mean, it's always good to check in with what your competitors are doing anyway. Um, but it, it lets you know what they're doing, what people are saying about your company, how people feel about your company, you know, what problems are they having, um, those sorts of things. And out of this, you can use this intelligence to say, okay, well, you know, we need to focus a bit more over here, or we're dropping the ball here, or this isn't going well, or we need more coverage, or, you know, we need different coverage, whatever it might be would come out of that intelligence. Uh, and then you'd be able to discuss that sort of internally with your partners or with, you know, whomever else you're, you're, you're working with. But I do think that first step is listening. It's getting out there, seeing what people are saying about you and in your industry. Right. That's great, great, great advice. And I imagine you're probably familiar with all kinds of wonderful apps that can help you sort of aggregate all of this, so, all of this data yeah, that's out there. Let me give an aside here. I recommend RSS. It stands for really simple syndication. I think it's been around since the earliest days of the internet. It's one of the oldest technologies out there, but basically it allows you to subscribe to websites and almost all websites have this, believe it or not. So if you go to a website like Feedly, F-E-E-D-L-E-Y, F-E-E-D-L-Y.com, or inoreader.com, I'll put the links in the show notes. Um, th these are called readers and they're empty. But what you can do is drop in these RSS feeds into these readers. So you can go, for instance, to the New York Times, find their feed, and then copy their feed, take it to your reader and paste it into your reader. And what it means is every time the New York Times publishes something, it will pop up in your reader. You don't need to go to the New York Times to see it. And what you can do here, even Google alerts do this. So if you set a Google alert for your, your workplace, there's an option to get an RSS feed instead of an email alert. And then you can drop that into your reader. Um, and if you do this with a few sort of key industry publications or Facebook or Twitter accounts also have RSS, you can track sort of the key opinion leaders for free. Um, inside of these readers, there are paid readers as well, but I think for, for basic use, it's, it's free and it's, it's, uh, and there's actually no need to pay. I log into RSS in the morning. I can see everything from all of the people that matter and all of the publications that matter in one spot quickly right away. Um, and that really saves a lot of time. So yeah, that's definitely one of the best ways to do it. That's really, really, really great, great advice. Um, yeah, I'll put, I, I should uh, be doing that. Yeah, I'll put some, some links in the show notes for that too. Um, the third one is SEO. Um, and we talked about this last week when we were going through content marketing. So SEO, uh, search engine optimization is what it stands for. Um, and it's described here as the strategies and practices for attracting organic traffic from search engines. 
And this is expected to be a major PR trend in 2021. And why is that? Well, it says, with social media algorithms being so volatile and risky and the media noise being so paramount, many organizations will be forced to take a step back and look at how they can have the audience come to them instead of the other way around. I am not fully on board with that. I think it is going to be important in 2021 to be proactive and to be marketing and communicating out. But SEO is still really important. And again, SEO really is about making sure that if you have a web page, for instance, so let's just say you're looking at your 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 company's website homepage. Underneath all of the content there is code that Google is looking at. And there is a, they're called tags, basically. There's a tag in there for the topic of your web page and uh, keywords and usually a, a statement that kind of summarizes what the key business is. Um, all of these different things that are there. And these tags are really what Google is looking for when it's ranking websites. And so having that done correctly is really important because that's when you show up in the search results. And I spoke last week, and again, I'll, I'll link to this as well. There are websites you can go to where you can put in either your business name or just your industry and see what people are searching, like what they're looking for. Um, and then you can write content on your website to address or answer those questions. And because you've already figured out people are asking these questions, there's a good chance that if you answer them, that that page will be high in the search results because people are looking for that information. So there is a way to 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 do this. And this is another key sort of marketing channel for you. And it, it can really bring some big benefits if it's done, if it's done well. Okay. Yes. Well, I think I said this last week, Cam, we, we, we didn't set up a slot. I know <laughs> I've got to, I've got to, I've got to book you. I know, I've got to lock you down. Yeah. <laughs> you I you know. figure some of this stuff out, but to that, but to your point, I mean, to your point, I should know this stuff. I mean, I should be familiar with this stuff. And I imagine that we probably have more than a few people who are listening, thinking exactly the same thinking like, Oh God, how am I, I got to figure this out because even to listen, you listen to you talk, it sounds really, really hard mm -hmm. and complicated. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of this stuff is actually pretty straightforward, but again, it's always just sort of that, that initial jumping off point, right. And wading into those waters and trying to figure it out for the first time. But yeah, I mean, this stuff, this stuff's necessary, but it's also, it's really overwhelming. Yeah. And I understand that. And you know what, you like, this is overwhelming to a lot of communications people too, because these skills were not needed previously. I mean, a lot of what was in PR communications was written or media relations kind of work. And that's still there. I mean, that's still a big part of it, but, um, you know, now it's branched off into many of these other areas that are, have come online. So, um, these are the things that we have to have to take a look at now as well. Um, but I do recommend, you know, search, search Google. I mean, there's a lot of people who are in the same boat that this is overwhelming. They don't fully understand it, or I'm not making much sense. Um, you can search online and find sort of how to articles and ways that break it down and explain it. So I do recommend using, using that as a resource. The fourth one is, is reputation management. This is sometimes referred to as issues management, which is basically managing communications on different issues affecting the company. And it's listed as a, as a PR trend for 2021. And why? Well, it says in the wake of the tech lash and the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, and followed by political pressures on social networks and critical views presented in documentaries like The Social Dilemma, which is on Netflix right now, 
Um, Social media seems to have become the primary battleground for changing hearts and minds. With mounting political polarization and social media pessimism, the internet functions as a catalyst by forcing organizations to adapt rapidly. And this is likely going to be a continuous challenge for PR professionals across the world next year. This is very true. So in any shop, I mean, PR people will know this already, you would have an issues management, either person or team that looks at the issues coming up in the media and looking at announcements coming up that the company's going to make. And just making sure these are managed well in terms of the announcements, in terms of the messaging around something um, for media and that sort of thing. But her point here really is with social media, the way it is, and with I mean, there's basically online mobs, especially on Twitter, um, but other sites as well that, you know, the tension can go from zero to 60 very, very fast. And suddenly your company is under the gun quickly. And so managing this, seeing it, being able to identify it and being able to manage it is absolutely, I fully agree. This is going to be a big issue next year. Yeah, I think it, that's going to be a big issue every year for the, yes. next, for the next few years. <laughs> I don't think that's going away in 2022. Yeah. It's not something new. That's for sure. Uh, and then the fifth one, you and it's just brand communities. So it's trying to build and maintain um, an online community of sort of actively engaged customers or consumers who also kind of advocate uh, on your, on your behalf. So this also is not new. Um, and this is something I should mention. We're even sort of starting to get more into, you know, at my current company as well, which is really sort of identifying people who are your fans or people who, you know, engage online and they're in your field and they've been either either neutral or positive on the company. You can nurture these people by talking to them, by engaging with them, maybe by giving them a little bit of inside information from time to time that they can they can share because, you know, it gives them a lot of traffic as well. So you can cultivate a community like this. I think one company that has done this exceedingly well is Apple. In fact, you know, there, there's if, if there's negative coverage about Apple in the news, there's often many websites jumping to the company's defense. Uh, and that's really, really powerful. It really is. Uh, and that that has the potential to change public opinion, even if it's done, if it's done well. So this is this is not easy to do actually. And this does take some time. This does involve listening first, and then it involves identifying what we call KOLs or key opinion leaders. Uh, and it involves figuring out like, do we want to engage with them? How do we want to engage with them? What do we want from them? What can we give them? Uh, it's not bribing, but it is um, sort of cultivating. It's okay, yeah, it's, it sounds, sounds like it, but it is cultivating that community so they can sort of advocate on your behalf as well. So this also is not new, but I do think that it is it is sort of picking up steam uh, as we go through here. Okay, so it's cultivated bribery, it's sophisticated <laughs> cultivated bribery. So what do you think, Ewan? These make sense to you? Um, no. <laughs> well, actually, sorry, that's not entirely true. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Um, again, I think it's it, it's just one of those things where it, it feels very overwhelming. It sounds very overwhelming. And whenever I hear about this kind of stuff, I immediately sort of think of, you know, big companies like Apple. I don't think of sort of, you know, smaller midsize companies or, uh, you know, a, a smaller law firm or something like that. Um, and it, it it's again, it's just sort of that, that jumping off point that seems really, really difficult. Like it's a steep, a steep learning curve, but you know, I think you've, you've laid out some of this stuff really, really well. 
and I will um, I will comb through all of the links you leave in the show notes. You know, you and actually uh, on that point, I, I've actually seen even your, your law firm a little bit in this area because I've seen people leave positive sort of Google business reviews of your firm. And oh, hey, that's great. Yeah, and these these things you can actually encourage. So I, again, somewhere in your communications with your clients, you may want to have somewhere in there where you can encourage them to leave a positive review or encourage them to you know, share, share their comments with you in a public forum. So this is something very, very small, but you're reminding them, Hey, can you do this for me in a way that doesn't obviously put too much pressure on them? Um, but this is just one minor way where these positive comments go online and they're indexed there and they're there basically permanently. And this can really help other people who are looking for a law firm. So, um, you know, that's just one sort of simple way to do this sort of thing. Yeah. That's a great example, Cam. That's good. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. What have you got, Ewan? Well, Cam, uh, as you know, our, uh, our, our American friends to the South, they have an election coming up. And I, uh, I read a Toronto Star article today that suggests that, um, you know, us Canadians, we may actually be the decisive factor in the U.S. election. How so? Well, uh, did you know, and I didn't know this, did you know that there's an estimated 620,000 eligible American voters in Canada? Oh, wow. No, I didn't know there were that many. 620,000. But apparently in in 2016, only 5% of them actually voted. So... As you can, I'm sure, appreciate, uh, both the the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have been doing a lot of work in trying to motivate Canadians to to vote. The ones that that obviously are eligible to vote um, in the United States. Now, you know, according to this article in the Toronto Star, the vast majority of them vote in New York or California, which, Mm -hmm. you know, typically go Democrat anyway. So it's not as though those votes um, really have a great, a particularly significant impact. But where things get a little more interesting is in a swing state like Michigan, which, you know, in 2016, Donald Trump won by 11,000 votes. Well, you know, according to this organization, Democrats Abroad, and they're one of the one of the organizations that have been really pushing eligible voters here in Canada to get out and vote. There are more than double that many Southern Ontario residents who are eligible to vote in Michigan. And of course, that's just Southern Ontario, never mind elsewhere in, in the country. So, I mean, who knows, Cam? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like Canada needs some uh, electoral college votes um, to kind of even it out. <laughs> hey, why not? Um, maybe, maybe they should give us. Give yeah. Us well, um, the item I wanted to mention, I mean, I've raved about The Atlantic quite a bit. I think it, it's a fantastic magazine generally. But I came across an article recently called Why the Alt-Right's Most Famous Woman Disappeared. Now, the whole world of the alt-right is quite fascinating on some level and i have read things about it here and there but this woman that this mentions i had not come across before and her name is lauren southern and she has become a a a major sort of influential voice in the alt-right slash white supremacist movement 
what I didn't know is that she's Canadian and she was born in Surrey, British Columbia, which is wow. sort of part of greater Vancouver uh, mm. on the West coast. The article I find quite, it, it's well done and I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Again, it's called why the alt-right's most famous woman disappeared. And it also talks about Gavin McInnes a lot in there. And he's the co-founder of vice who is also Canadian uh, from Montreal. And he's also, I mean, he's the founder of the proud boys. So that's also got Canadian Canadian DNA on it. So um, anyway, but the the article actually is sort of in conjunction with a new documentary called White Noise that documents the uh, alt-right movement in the U.S. And Lauren Southern, McInnes, and others uh, play prominent roles in that documentary. I did watch it last night. I actually thought it wasn't very good. I think a lot of the stuff that it documents is already well-known um, and happened a while ago. Like, it looks at the Charlottesville rally and things like that. But the article, definitely. Uh, I would definitely recommend the article. Uh, to the point where I wrote about this myself, actually, on my own sort of blog last night. So I'll link to all of that in the show notes. But I do recommend this as a way to look into sort of how that operates. But also, I think the, the main takeaway is just how much damage can be done by a person who is young, naive, and has a knack for social media. Um, so definitely something to check out. Wow. Yeah. I mean, what's that, uh, you know, that great Mahatma Gandhi quote? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it, but I'm going to do it anyway, that, you know, anyone who doesn't believe that one person can make a difference has never spent an evening in a tent with a mosquito. Yes. <laughs> I think about that all the time, actually, when there's a mosquito in my, in the, in the room. So yeah, good point. That's Ewan. right. Uh, anything else before we close out? No, that that's it, Cam. That's all I got. Good show. Um, you know, thanks again for, uh, for accommodating me in the evening shift here. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, actually I have more energy in the mornings. I'm kind of like in the mornings right now, but uh, it's a holiday Monday in Hong Kong. That's why I'm able to get away with this. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for joining us again this week. Don't miss a show. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or you can subscribe to us on YouTube and SoundCloud. We're on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the account name PR Law Podcast, all one word, P r l a w podcast and please sign up for the newsletter as well it's kind of cool to see the uh, subscriber numbers increase there it's at prlawpodcast.club so for you and christy this is cam mcmurchie thanks so much for joining us light it up this has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. Cam and Ewan, strong guys.